So this third and uh, final talk uh, for this retreat uh, is called uh, Nirvana is Now. Um, some of you might catch an echo of um, a rather influential essay by Barnett Newman, the uh, American painter, called The Sublime is Now. So let's see what that means, or what that might mean. I'm going to start with um, a dialogue um, from the uh, Pali uh, discourses. And it's a dialogue that I think in, in some ways um, has certain uh, resonances with the sort of dialogues that we find in the Zen texts. And I suppose what I mean by this is that the, um, it's not um, a question-answer situation where, as we often find in the early canon, um, a questioner comes to the Buddha, asks the Buddha a question, and the Buddha then gives the answer. Here, as we'll see, the Buddha throws the question back onto the questioner and gets the questioner to answer it for himself. It's somewhat unusual, this approach. Now, the questioner uh, in this case is a man called Molya Sivaka. Molya means uh, top knot. And Sivaka is his name, and it suggests that he is a, a sadhu-type figure, not a follower of the Buddha, uh, an inquirer, a searcher. And he comes to the Buddha and he says, um, you talk of a clearly visible dharma. In what respects is the dharma clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. This is one of the most uh, famous uh, statements as to the nature of the Dharma. The Dharma is sanditiko, clearly visible, immediate, in Pali is akaliko, which is sometimes translated more literally as timeless, but I follow Bhikkhu Bodhi here. The Dharma is not something that is arrived at over a sequence of steps that occur in time, but it is immediate. It's right here and now. It's clearly visible, which again has, uh, for those of us who are familiar with the Zen tradition, again, a very, a very strong resonance. It's inviting. In other words, it's actually calling or drawing us to it in a strange way. It's, it's tantalizing. It's seductive, perhaps. It's uplifting. In other words, it refers to, to what inspires us, what uh, invokes in us a sense of, of what we value most dearly, our core values. And it is to be personally experienced by the wise, and again, I think this is a, 
a very suggestive expression, um, if only because it points to the fact that the Dharma is not something exclusive to people who call themselves Buddhists. The wise, uh, the pandita, I think is probably the word. Um, People who are intelligent, who are uh, sincere, um, who are uh, learned, um, will find themselves experiencing the world in this way anyway. So it suggests there's a kind of universal quality uh, to the Dharma. As we'll see, Sivaka, he's not a Buddhist, he's just curious as to what the Buddha has to say. Perhaps many of us in this room are not think of ourselves as Buddhists, but we're kind of curious as to what it's about. We find certain elements of it uplifting, inviting, but we don't want to uh, self-identify as a Buddhist. That doesn't seem to be a problem for the Buddha. So the question is, what do you mean to say that this Dharma is clearly visible? And this is the Buddha's Response. He says, let me ask you a question about this, Sivaka. You reply as you feel fit. What do you think? When there is greed within you, do you know, ah, there's greed within me? And when there is no greed within you, do you know, ah, there's no greed within me? And Sivaka replies, yes, of course. And then, in the rather tedious manner of the suttas, the Buddha asks the same question regarding hatred, delusion, qualities associated with greed, qualities associated with hatred, qualities associated with delusion, and we go through exactly the same um, dialogue uh, five more times, but I'm going to spare you that. So in other words, um, the Buddha says, okay, when there's greed, hatred, confusion, you know for yourself that they're there. And when they're absent, when there's no greed, no hatred, no delusion in your mind, you know that too. And Sivaka says, yes, sure. And then the Buddha says, well, it's in this way that the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. Now there's another passage, um, I forget exactly where, um, where we get a similar uh, question-answer going on, except this time the Buddha's talking to a Brahmin called Janusoni, and instead of the Dharma being clearly visible, He says, nirvana is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. Nirvana itself. And that might strike us as a bit odd. Again, it's very close to what we find in Chan or Zen. You're already enlightened. The Buddha is already in you. It's there. You just can't see it because of the cloudiness of your mind. We have also to remember that for the Buddha, the words Dharma and Nirvana are often more or less synonymous. 
when he describes, uh, when he recalls um, his own awakening, he recalls having uh, arrived at the Dhamma. And the Dhamma he then describes as a tanna, which means a ground, that, he, the, the, that he's arrived at this ground, and he describes this ground as twofold. On the one hand, this ground is seeing, uh, or seeing this ground is to see conditionality, paticca samuppada, contingency. And at the same time, to see this ground is to see nirvana. And nirvana is the stopping of craving, the stopping of greed, the stopping of hatred, and so on. So what the Buddha is telling um, Molya Sivaka, and by implication what he's now telling us, is that well, this thing which is often regarded as the highest goal of Buddhism, nirvana, and it's certainly true that in the uh, evolution of Buddhist thought and doctrine over the centuries, nirvana has been ratcheted up to ever higher levels so that it becomes something um, you know, sort of out of human reach almost unless you are an arhant or something. Here he's saying uh, really something rather different. He's saying nirvana is clearly visible here and now. He also says in the passage which I cited about his recollection of his own experience of awakening, he says that the Dhamma is dudasu, hard to see. So we get this strange sort of tension or paradox. Nirvana, or the Dharma, or conditionality, is clearly visible, but hard to see. I think that's very um, uh, intriguing. What does that mean? It's, it's right there before you, right before your eyes, but it's very difficult to see it. And again, that's got a very Zen-like feel to it. I mentioned the other night, I think, the image of the fish who spends its life uh, swimming through the oceans looking for water. The water's clearly visible, but it's so close you can't see it. Very difficult to see. And we find this paradox um, in both traditions. We find it in these early suttas, we find it in Zen. Now, the, um, the definition that we find for nirvana um, in some of the suttas, um, so there's a sequence of suttas in the Sangyutta, the connected discourses, which um, define it this way. Nirvana is defined as the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. Now, Again, it's often interpreted that ending, kayo in Pali, um, means literally these things have stopped and will never happen again. But if we think back to the dialogue with Sivaka, he seems actually to be talking about how whenever you know for yourself that your mind is not inflected 
by greed or inflected or determined by hatred or under the sway of confusion and stupidity. That is to see the Dharma. The Dharma is there, clearly visible. So we can take this idea of ending, not in this ultimate final sense where something has literally been eliminated or deleted, but in the sense that each time greed, let's say, or attachment or fear or hatred, each time that they arise, they're present. But their nature is having risen to cease. And when they stop, and we can observe this in meditation, we feel a particular emotion, say, taking us over, we try to just stay with it rather than follow it, we notice its uh, transient quality, and we also notice how in time it fades out and it stops. If we don't buy into it and feed it and fuel it, it'll just burn itself out. And as it burns itself out, as it comes to a stop, the stopping of it, that moment, in your experience, is nirvana. Nirvana is that uh, possibility uh, of freedom that is opened up each time greed, hatred, confusion, and all the other bad things that Buddhism doesn't like fade away and just stop. And although we sometimes get the impression in reading uh, Buddhist texts that human beings are... um, are sort of intrinsically and almost uh, pathologically greedy, hateful, fearful, egoistic creatures. Is that true? Certainly those uh, emotions and those feelings are no doubt familiar to us, but there are also numerous occasions, maybe as many occasions um, as not, when we're not under the sway of those things. When the mind quietens down, particularly, say, during a retreat, when we experience a a real sort of quiet and peace within us, it may not be something particularly ecstatic, it's not something we would regard as enlightenment, or at least not corresponding to some fanciful idea we have about enlightenment. In that moment of calm and stillness, uh, and just ordinariness, basically, you know, when we just sort of sit down and stop and just let things just sort of fade away. That's nirvana. That space there. That totally ordinary, natural, human condition of stillness. But of course, the next moment, something will pop up again. And nirvana then becomes obscured, becomes not difficult to see, impossible to see. But there are many moments when it is clearly difficult, sorry, when it is clearly visible, and we still don't see it. We still can't get it. We still can't quite uh, grasp that. So the stopping or the ceasing or the absence of greed, of hatred, delusion, instead of thinking of these as, you know, some technical Buddhist definition, Apply it 
to your actual here and now experience moment to moment? Under what circumstances does that actually apply to you? Buddhism, probably like many traditions, likes to uh, elevate its higher or core values and, and so on um, to such an impossible height that only the great enlightened masters of the past and maybe a handful of particularly uh, brilliant or wise or compassionate people alive today have any access to this. But I think in the early tradition, um, what the Buddha was presenting was something that's actually immediate, something that all people could, could have immediate access to, a possibility that was open in just ordinary everyday life, provided we have the capacity to notice it to see it, maybe to create the conditions that would optimize those moments of stilling and stopping. So you have this phrase in Pali, um, ragakayo, dosakayo, uh, mohakayo, the ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of confusion. Now, one of the great things about um, modern technology, particularly the internet, is that now, um, in, a, in, in, in a few seconds, you can punch that Pali phrase into a search engine, um, which is built into the Pali canon online, in Pali, unfortunately. And you can just say, search, go. And it'll tell you exactly where else that... Um, a phrase occurs everywhere throughout 8,000 pages of text and it takes about about one second. <laughs> and it lists all of the places. Now, I did that just out of curiosity and I came up with something rather interesting. That same phrase is which is used to define nirvana is also defines, uh, is also the definition of the unconditioned. It's the definition of the deathless. And it's the definition of understanding, or, or parinya in Pali, fully knowing something. Fully knowing the deathless, the unconditioned, and nirvana are all described in exactly the same way. Ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of confusion. Now, uh, again, I, w I was surprised, but also rather delighted that this was the case. Because especially these terms, uh, the unconditioned and the deathless, and you'll notice when they appear in English translations, are often capitalized deathless with a big D, unconditioned with a big U, nice, clear, definite article, the. There's no the in Pali, there's no capital letters in Pali, but English translators like to add them. And the question, of course, is why? And my sense is because they want to privilege these ideas as something very special. These become privileged religious objects. Um, immediately, just in the typography, they're somehow elevated out of our reach. 
And that reinforces the whole, you know, power structure of religious orthodoxy and hierarchy. But that's another story. We'll get into that maybe on the next retreat. So when the Buddha um, uh, 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 gives a, a talk in, on the unconditioned, he says, Amongst, I will teach you the unconditioned. What is the unconditioned? The unconditioned is ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of confusion. In other words, the unconditioned, which might, at the Buddha's time, have referred to God, in other words, the that uh, you know the, the 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 prime, the unmoved mover of Aristotle, um, the uncreated creator of Christianity, um, the un you know the the, the the this ultimate ground of being that's not conditioned or caused by anything else. The Buddha takes that term and rather cleverly transforms it from a noun into a verb. In other words, he's saying unconditioned means to be unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by confusion. In other words, it's not positing some ultimate, some ultimate truth, the unconditioned, but it's describing a possibility that is actually open to any human being here and now. You have the freedom to live in this world in what you think, in what you say, in what you do, unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by confusion. And this, I think, is what the Buddha is pointing out to Molya Sivaka, do you know when there's no greed within you? Yes. No hatred? Yes. No confusion? Yes. That's the Dharma that is clearly visible. That's Nirvana. So again, again and again, we come back to something immediate. The other word, deathless, the deathless. The word in, in Pali is amata. The word in Sanskrit is amrta. And the word in Greek is ambrosia. It's exactly the same word. And they all mean the same. Ambrosia means not dying, not death. Amrta, not death. Amata, not death. Translated in most Buddhist translations in English as the deathless. Same word is used in uh, Hindu translations of the Upanishads, where peculiarly it's always translated as immortality, with a capital I. Now, I wonder what that... Again, I think what the Buddha's doing is much as he does with um, uncondi the unconditioned becomes unconditioned by. The deathless, rather than referring to something which is eternal, which wouldn't really fit within the Buddhist emphasis on the impermanence of all things, deathless, uh, I think, he turns into a metaphor for 
um, an abundant life. In other words, a, a condition in which you are no longer under the, um, the hold or the grasp of death. Now death, in, in early Buddhism, is called Mara, the demonic. And um, to experience life in such a way that you are not uh, in the grip of the demonic means to not be in the grip of greed, of hatred, of delusion. And positively, that means that your life at that moment um, is no longer restricted or constrained or somehow um, blocked by the aridity, as we saw in the first talk, of greed, hatred, delusion. Remember, these were the three kinds of aridity the Buddha spoke of, the aridity of greed, hatred, and the aridity of delusion, the dryness, that barren uh, condition in which we're not actually really alive. So the deathless is life which is not uh, inhibited by the, the forces of the inner death or the inner barrenness of these attachments and graspings. Now there's a passage that um, I came across very recently, in fact, two days ago, when I was um, <clears throat> uh, looking, I won't tell you what I was doing, I was doing, doing some research on them, looking for a particular word in the Pali Canon to see how often it occurs. And I came across this uh, <clears throat> rather extraordinary uh, section. It's the very last section of the first part of the Anguttara Nikaya. The Anguttara Nikaya means the numerical discourses, and numerical means that you have a section of text where the, the Buddha is talking about one thing, and then you get a section of text where the Buddha talks about two things, and then three things, four things, five things, up to about 11 or 12. It's In other words, it's a taxonomic, mnemonic system for organizing material. The very end of the section on the ones, we find a whole sequence of uh, 12 little suttas uh, on the deathless. And they all say the same thing in slightly different ways. Um, <clears throat> because they have neglected the deathless who have neglected mindfulness of the body. They have undertaken the deathless who have undertaken mindfulness of the body. Uh, they are not heedless about the deathless. In other words, they care for the deathless who are not who care for mindfulness about the body. They have not forgotten the deathless who have not forgotten mindfulness directed to the body. They have pursued the deathless who have pursued mindfulness directed to the body, and so on. They have directly known the deathless who have directly known mindfulness of the body. They have fully understood the deathless and fully understood it's that same word, parinya, which is synonymous with the deathless, actually. 
they have fully understood the deathless, who have fully understood mindfulness directed to the body. They have beheld the deathless, who have beheld mindfulness directed to the body. Now, I suspect this is um, um, a very explicit uh, counter-move against the idea that the deathless is something transcendent. In each of these suttas, uh, to experience the deathless in all these different modalities, not forgetting it, being heedful of it, realizing it, knowing it, all are essentially synonymous to being mindful of the body. It all comes back to the body. So the deathless is actually, to be aware of the deathless is to be aware of the body. It's quite odd given a, a lot of Buddhist orthodoxy. To be aware of the deathless is to be aware of the body. Now this, of course, is very much the experience we've been having this week, I suspect, being aware of the body. Continue, you know, the, the posture, the breath, um, uh, all of these things that bring us back again and again and again and again to the body. And if we think of the deathless as, uh, uh, as that which is freed from the grip of death, that is somehow in touch, therefore, with life, then the body, of course, is that uh, primary um, uh, experience we have. The experience of being embodied is equal to, identical to, the experience of being Alive. The experience of being alive. So the deathless is life. And the life, not in some abstract sense, but the life that comes in each breath. The life that comes with each pulse of blood, with each heartbeat. That's the deathless with the qualification that is experienced uh, when greed and hatred and egoism and confusion and all the other stuff has cleared, has created a sort of an opening when those things are temporarily not operative, when we experience our body in a non-greedy, non-hateful, non-confused way, we're experiencing the deathless, we're experiencing nirvana, we're experiencing the unconditioned, and we're fully understanding that. So these texts all um, kind of um, deflate the rather exaggerated and um, I think rather idealistic sense we have of things like nirvana, unconditioned, deathless, it brings it back to something clearly visible here and now in the body. It also um, is something that is therefore accessible and available to anyone, not just monks or renunciants or arhants or Buddhas, anyone. Now, another passage that I've recently, um, 
uncovered in the uh, so the Anguttara Nikaya among the sixes in the sections 119 to 139, if you want to look it up. Uh, this is a curious text. And um, uh, the traditional commentators uh, find it rather problematic. But this is what the text says. It, it lists, it's a sequence of suttas, of discourses, that name 21 householders. Well, strictly speaking, 19 of them are called householders and two of them are called lay followers. 21 names. Amongst these, there are probably very few, if any, that you would recognize. The best known one is Anata Pindaka, the man who donated the Jetta Grove uh, to the Buddha. Um, you may also have heard of Jivaka, who was the Buddha's doctor, Mahanama, the Buddha's cousin, who was the head of Sakya. But basically, these are obscure figures. And these uh, figures, and I've looked them all up, about a third of them are merchants, bankers, and treasurers. Two of them are government officials. One, Jivaka, is a doctor, and the rest we don't actually know enough about to know their, 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 uh, uh, their employment or their, their role in life. We just are told where they um, lived and, or where they were born. And they're scattered all over the area where the Buddha lived, but most of them are in Kosala, in the northern part um, of, uh, north of the Ganges. So these are, these are people, like us, who are totally involved in the world, um, who are busy, they have incredible responsibilities, and they seem to show no inclination whatsoever about becoming monks or nuns. They're all men, unfortunately. I was rather hoping there'd be a few women in there, but... Sorry. Uh, okay, now this is the phrase that is used to describe each of them. This is their virtue that they have achieved. They, it says they have um, attained fulfillment in the Tathagata, become seers of the deathless, and go through life having beheld the deathless. And as a result of that, they have achieved lucid confidence in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, as well as they've achieved noble virtue, noble wisdom, and noble liberation. Now, the reason this passage is problematic for traditionalists, even Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a, who's a very generous, liberal kind of guy, finds this text unusual because it's almost saying that these 21 people are arhants. They're fully realized, which is not a word I like, but they've achieved a degree, they, they, they are embodying qualities that are normally associated with uh, enlightened monks. But here we have bankers, treasurers, merchants, doctors, etc. Now, although this is problematic for traditionalists, from the point of view of um, historical uh, um, 
critical historical research, um, this text is very likely to be original for the simple reason because it would not have been in anybody's interests later to add it. The, the, the canon was um, memorized by communities of monks and transmitted by communities of monks. And um, it's difficult to see why they would have invented this text later and added it in. It wouldn't have been in their interest. And also, why would they dream up these 21 obscure figures, all of whom can be, well, most of whom can be tracked down in the canon, but they're very marginal characters. So if we take the basic assumption, the text either goes back to the Buddha or it was added later, there's very little ground on which to argue a reason for adding it later given the context in which the texts were preserved. So this gives it a, um, a considerable degree of likelihood of being authentic, that these were perhaps people who did in fact exist, who lived in this, these household lives, as it were, and yet, amatam sachikatva iriati, having beheld the deathless, I've translated as they go through life. The word iriyati means they, they get around, they live. Iriya is the word for the postures, sitting, standing, lying down, etc. Again, bodily. They get their body, they move their bodies around, having experienced or experiencing the deathless. In other words, they're not out on some mountain top meditating on the unconditioned, they're doing their business transactions or running the government from this perspective. It's quite clear. So, this passage uh, affirms, I think, what we've just been looking at, what we saw with Sivaka, that this experience is something immediate, here and now, clearly visible, albeit difficult to see. But it's not just some kind of spiritual experience that you might get a glimpse of on a retreat. No, here are 21 lay followers of the Buddha who go about in their bodies in the world doing their work from this perspective. It's very unusual to find this kind of affirmation. But there it is. So let's just try to flesh out a little bit more what it would entail to live in the world from such a perspective. It would follow, I think, that they somehow embrace life. <clears throat> um, they, they're open to uh, the conditions of the world in which they live. I'm paraphrasing here the Four Noble Truths, which I call the Four Noble Tasks. They embrace the condition of the world they're in. They are aware of the reactions that arise as the body and the mind encounter different environments and situations. 
And what arises uh, on such encounters is basically reactivity. And reactivity, again, is attachment, hatred, fear, and so on. But they let go of that reactivity. They don't buy into it. They don't let the reactivity determine what they think or say or do. Instead, they notice, they behold, sachikaroti, they behold the ceasing or the stopping of reactivity, just as Molya Sivaka did. And from that stopping, from that experience of uh, the ceasing of reactivity, or let's say from the experience of realizing that you are free not to go along with your instinctive reactions, they embark on a way of life. They engage the Eightfold Path. And in this way, this uh, uh, way of life, or this practice, is completely integrated in a life in the world. Uh, It's a practice uh, for everyone. And it's embodied in the examples of these 21 figures. But it's an ongoing practice. This is the point. Um, The retreats, um, or periods of time spent in a monastery, for example, uh, can be very, very useful in somehow refining one's attention, uh, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating a certain inquiry, becoming more self-aware, being more conscious of your habit patterns and so on. But that is really just a kind of training uh, environment. Uh, The real practice um, is when you leave the retreat or leave the monastery and go into the world. And again, this is reminiscent perhaps of the ten ox herding pictures in Zen, where you go through this whole kind of spiritual Uh, experience and development and struggle and the last or the culmination of the sequence of the ox herding pictures is that you return to the marketplace with bliss bestowing hands is the Chinese expression so again it's an affirmation of how uh, this practice in some ways is artificial in a retreat and only is, as it were, tested against the actual world itself when you return into your daily life. And this Eightfold Path, as I mentioned before, um, is comprised of these elements that are uh, called Samar, or complete. And I understood this to be integrated. So, The practice is not so much a sequence of steps. First I do this right view, then I get right thought, then I get right speech. But rather to recognize that life doesn't allow us the luxury of being able to have the time to cultivate each step one at a time. You are thrown into situations and you have to respond. Not react, respond not react out of your own self-interest or fear or likes or dislikes, 
but respond. Respond to the world unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by confusion. So nirvana, or the deathless, or the unconditioned, are not the goal of the path. And again, classically, it's the noble eightfold path that leads to the end of suffering. In practice, it's the experience of the unconditioned, the deathless, that gives you the freedom to respond to life rather than just be driven by your habitual reactivities, desires and fears. That's the freedom. It's not a a spiritual freedom that occurs in the privacy of your own mind. It's an actual freedom that is embodied in ethical responses to the world itself. And so such a life is an integrated life in which the way you see things, the way you make choices, in other words, moral choices, the way you speak and act and work, again, this is totally in the field of ethics, the way you apply yourself, the way you motivate yourself, the way you pay attention, the way you concentrate, all of that, at least ideally, is to somehow uh, come more and more into a, a, a holistic way of being, uh, a, a completed or integrated way of being in the world. And this is the basis uh, for the creation of both community and the creation of a culture. That uh, the Sangha, um, the community, is composed, according to the earliest uh, uh, text in Pali, not of monks and nuns, but the Sangha is composed of all of those, whether they're monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, who have engaged with the Eightfold Path, who have entered that stream, who live their life, as the text says, having beheld the deathless in their bodies as bankers, merchants, etc. That's the Sangha. So the Sangha, the community, um, is that body of men and women who um, are committed to seeking to live their lives from this uh, perspective, from the perspective of not being conditioned, from the perspective of life rather than death, from the perspective of nirvana. And working together, living together, um, communicating together, creating art together, writing literature together, developing uh, social and political institutions and structures together, that's what generates uh, a new kind of culture. A culture that's not premised on on greed or individualism or, uh, or you know, basically things driven by greed and hatred, but a culture that is unconditioned by such things. I know that's very idealistic, but frankly, we live in a world now where such a culture, I think, would be a very good idea. So, 
how am I going to bring Lin Chi into this? <laughs> well, okay, I, I found a, a, a couple of passages that <clears throat> I feel are saying pretty much the same thing. This is from his record, the Lin Chi Lu. <clears throat> the Buddhas are born, says Lin Chi, from the realm that leans on nothing. If you can awaken, if you can awaken to this leaning on nothing, then there will be no Buddha to get hold of. Leans on nothing. Lean, in other words, I would interpret this to mean uh, the realm that doesn't lean on greed, doesn't lean on hatred, doesn't lean on confusion. In other words, that's very much like nirvana. Not greed, not hatred. In other words, you don't lead your life leaning on your own strategies of pure self-interest and attachment. And if you can wake up to this leaning on nothing, in other words, living a life in which you're not being propped up by your beliefs or your certainties or your, uh, your, your convictions, let's say, then there will be no Buddha to get hold of. In other words, you'll stop thinking about the Buddha as someone who lives or inhabits some sort of special, privileged, spiritual or religious realm. You'll actually be living it out yourself. And this is a, a theme that runs right through the work of Lin Chi. And... Um, it's Lin Chi, in fact, in this same text, who makes this very um, uh, radical utterance. If you meet the Buddha, kill him. If you meet the patriarch, kill him. If you meet the Arhant, kill him. If you meet your parents, kill them. Very famous passage. And this is basically a reference to that. As long as you... Uh, uh, believe in the authority and the power of these figures who somehow uh, stand outside your own experience. You have elevated them into a kind of iconic status. If you find your mind turning back to that sort of external authority, kill it. And he goes on, if you want to be free to be born or die, to go or stay, as one would put on or take off a garment, then you must understand right now that the person here listening to the Dharma has no form, no characteristics, no root, no beginning, no place he abides yet he is vibrantly alive. This is the kind of language that I think Zen is very good at um, articulating, which you don't find so much in the early texts. In the Pali Canon, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that the Dharma has no form, no characteristics, no root, no beginning, no place, etc. Indian thought is in love with negatives. But what the Chinese do is they bring, probably from their Taoist background, 
uh, an affirmation of being vibrantly alive. And this, I think, is also captured in the passage I cited, the, the, these 21 men who, <clears throat> who, who iriati, who go about in the world having seen the deathless. There it's affirmed. And very much, I think, in the same sort of uh, way that Lynch is, aff- is affirming it. So in other words, if you want to be free to be born or to die, to go or stay, as one would put on or take off a garment, piece of clothing. In other words, it's an acknowledgement yet again of the, of the specificity, the immediacy, that this practice is really nothing more special than putting on your clothes in the morning and taking them off at night. That's what it's all about. It's the absolutely ordinariness of every day. You don't need Buddhas and patriarchs and arhats and other authorities. You don't need uh, to believe in all that stuff. The core of the Chan or Zen practice is to uh, actualize this perspective in your own experience here and now. And again, we do that in a retreat. We might get moments or maybe sustained uh, periods where we really feel at home in that space. But the real practice begins when we leave here tomorrow. <laughs> and then in conclusion, um, just one more little bit. These passages are all within the same talk. Followers of the way, Linji says, the Dharma of the Buddhas has no special undertakings. Just act ordinary, without trying to do anything particular. Move your bowels, piss, get dressed, eat your rice, and if you get tired, lie down. (laughs) Fools may laugh at me, but wise men will know what I mean. (laughs) So we'll leave it there. Okay. um, I ran over time a bit there. Um, one question I'll take from someone who hasn't asked one yet. Uh, Tom. Uh, my lecturer at the university used to say that um, uh, the whole of Buddhism was like a heating system for the Buddha's awakening. I should call it that. Uh, so this is really leading on from the, uh, what you're saying about being careful not to privilege mm-hmm. awakening. Uh, my question, is, I'm not sure how clear it is, is, is the mindfulness tradition uh, a functional enough heating system. Um, yeah. Uh, so the, your professor said that the whole teachings of Buddhism are like a heating system to wake people up. Kind of. Yeah. Okay. Sort of spread the heat of the okay. Yeah, I think that's a reasonably good metaphor, and I like the down-to-earthness of it. Hmm. Heating system. Okay, one more. I just want to make a suggestion rather than ask a question. Okay. Ask a question 
there is this. Um, you list 21 people by asking the question, why, why are these people, why, why are they included and not, say, 50 other people? One of the things in common is money. Sorry? One of the things most people have in common is money. Money. Well, not most of them. Well, as far as we know, uh, the majority of them that we know anything about, yeah. Yeah, well, there's probably a relationship between knowing about and the fact that they have money. Mm. What it struck me out is that they were the, the donors. Mm -hmm. They were somehow the sponsors, the executive producers. <laughs> and the reason it's included is just a matter of irony for their contribution. Although it's not explicit, and they gave us the money to do this. They're just materialists, you can live your life, you can make a donation, you can support this whole way of thinking. Well, maybe that's true. Um, that thought did cross my mind as well. Um, but that again would be a response which would somehow presuppose um, the fact that um, uh, you know, monks need to be supported. Um, I'm not so persuaded by it, though, because when I, uh, the book I'm writing at the moment actually takes two of these people that we know a fair bit about, Mahanama and Jivaka. Um, Mahanama was the Buddha's cousin who basically took the job the Buddha would have had had he not left home. He became the head of the Sakyan clan. He wasn't a wealthy man, he was a farmer. And uh, the other, so, so I'm, I've actually done a, a whole chapter of my next book is on Mahanama. And there you get a story, there you get a, uh, of all of these 21 figures, he's the one we actually know the most about. The others we know so little about, apart from the, you know, their status. But this fellow we know a lot about. And when you piece all the little fragments together that are scattered through the texts, you find a very moving portrait of a man who is really struggling. He's not presented as a sort of, you know, sort of idealized good Buddhist. He comes to the Buddha and he confesses that he's, he, he's ravaged by desire and fear. How do I deal with this? Um, he's a very real kind of person. So that would be, I think, a rather strong example that would counter the we just, this is the way of honoring the donor thesis, which is, I wouldn't discount it in some of those cases. That's possible. And the other character that I devote a chapter to in the book I'm writing about is the Buddha's doctor, Jivaka, who again doesn't, is certainly not um, uh, a donor or a wealthy man. He is a, uh, he's, he's regarded as a, as a very skilled surgeon and doctor. And again, we know a fair bit about him. We can trace his movements. We know where he studied we know some of the conflicts he, he worked with. We know something about his father, who was a chariot maker. So in the cases where we do have uh, a, a fair amount of detail as to what these men said and did and how they interacted with the Buddha, it, it, they, they, they are portrayed, not idealistically, but in a very kind of human and... Uh, I think, of a very honest sort of way. And they're people that we, I can relate to. I can't relate to Sariputta or these, and these arhats and these monks who frankly come across as rather almost sort of stereotypes. They, they're sort of featureless, characterless almost. 
But when you get into the lives of Mahanama, the lives of, of Jivaka, uh, you encounter real flesh and blood human beings uh, doing difficult work. And in Mahanama's case, ending up, it's, it's the his end of his life, life is a tragedy. He ends up basically sacrificing, killing himself in order to save his community. So, um, and yet all of these are people who had, according to this text, um, uh, lived from the perspective of the deathless. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.